0: Russia has invaded Ukraine. People here in the capital city are waking up to the sound of boom. Troops have now entered the Donbas. Picking off Ukraine's military facilities one
1: after another.
2: 24th of February 2022, Russia started its full-scale invasion of Ukraine.
1: Forcing Ukrainians to decide whether to flee or to fight.
2: The war has led to human suffering, devastation and death.
1: What seemed unthinkable in the 21st century is now underway.
2: But has also led to increased political and economic sanctions on Russia. Putin
1: chose this war and now he and his country will bear the consequences.
2: And this has meant limitations on Russia's natural gas exports to Europe. As a result, energy prices have skyrocketed and not the least caused concern in European countries about energy security. In the EU, the reaction was swift. We have to get rid of this dependency
3: all over Europe.
2: That was Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, in her yearly State of the Union speech in 2022. Russian gas accounted for 40% of our imported gas. Today it's down to 9%. So indeed, the war in Ukraine and the current geopolitical situation have revealed the vulnerabilities of being dependent on the import of oil, coal and natural gas. For many European countries, for example the Nordic countries, these developments have given new impetus to accelerate their own production of energy, and not just any type of energy. The ultimate goal, especially in the Nordics, is to be mostly reliant on renewable energy, like wind and hydropower, solar energy or, in the future, green hydrogen. In this episode, we discuss how the Nordics and other countries, for instance Japan, can further exploit their renewable energy resources to become more independent, while at the same time making their energy consumption more sustainable. I'm Josefine Folkvass, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast.
0: We are now suffering from very high electricity prices as consumers, but as producers of renewable electricity, This is just increasing the profitability of renewables and encouraging more investments in especially wind power, but also solar.
2: This is Thomas Korberger from Sweden. He's the director of energy research at Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg. But he's also the executive board chairman of the Renewable Energy Institute in Japan. And so, today he's in Tokyo, the world's most populated city, and therefore also one of the biggest energy users in the world. He's participating in a Nordic talks event at the University of Creativity. The event is arranged by the Nordic embassies in Japan and the Nordic Innovation House in Tokyo.
0: Globally, the um, increased fossil fuel prices have almost simulated what we would see in economic terms if we had a global carbon tax. So from a climate change perspective, this is a gigantic force to reduce the use of fossil fuels and increase investments in in renewables and other fossil-free alternatives.
2: Next to Thomas sits Stian Solia. He's Norway's honorary general consul in the Japanese city of Kobe. And since Norway is one of the world's largest exporters of oil and gas, The rise of global fuel prices naturally has an impact there.
3: On one side, we see that isolated for Norway, uh, this is of course financially beneficial when it comes to export of energy. But we also see inside Norway that uh, due to the uh, electricity uh, prices, uh, significant increase, that that is creating, you can call it, if you can call something unrest in Norway, that will be it because it affects people's uh, pockets. But I also agree with Thomas. This is uh, really increasing the drive to go for renewables. I see the government of Norway now, two days ago, they were launching kind of the frame conditions for hearing on, on big uh, offshore wind uh, places in, in Norway. So I definitely see that as, as a driver, so in the same way as, uh, as for Thomas.
2: Stian nods to his right at Thomas, and a few seconds later, he looks to the left at a third participant in this talk.
4: Thank you for having me here. Uh, it's great to be here amongst Nordic colleagues again.
2: This is Lars-Gerd Lohse from Denmark.
4: Just a, a, f- a reflection on the drivers for renewables, first of all, because I very much agree, I mean, the security crisis has, or energy crisis has, accelerated the drive towards a green transition. And we already had the climate crisis, uh, which, which drove it in itself. There's a third component to this, uh, which is that renewable energy today is cost competitive. Uh, the te- technology has developed to a point where it's actually cheaper to do renewables compared to coal, gas and and nuclear as well. Uh, And faster, by the way, as well. So it's a good business case as
2: well. Lars is head of global public affairs, communication and marketing at Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, an investment firm specialising in infrastructure investments, particularly wind power. And wind energy is a big deal in Denmark.
4: Of course, we're also affected by the energy crisis uh, because the price of electricity is not just a Danish affair, it's a Nordic, European affair. So all consumers are hurting uh, these days, including uh, in Denmark. So uh, there's been taking unprecedented political decisions on where we want to go in renewables. Not just to 100% of Denmark; we want to go to 300% of the consumption in Denmark because we want to export it. Uh, Again, it's good business. And you need to think about this as a regional matter. Uh, We need to link up not only the Nordics, but it needs to be larger than that. So we're actually looking at the North Sea as a new powerhouse in Europe. There was a big summit in May in in Denmark actually, where together with Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium and Denmark, setting the goal of of producing 150 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2050. And that would uh, bring us very, very far in in alleviating some of the crisis we see today. We would actually be able to replace most of the gas that was previously imported from from Russia through renewables in that sense.
2: According to Lars, establishing renewable energy is getting so cost-effective that it's beneficial for all countries, even for countries with no history of offshore wind.
4: Of course, if you go to a country where you haven't had offshore business or build-out before, it's more expensive because there's no supply chain. Uh, You have to develop everything from the ground, but it's still very, very cost-competitive. If you look at the New World (laughs) Energy Outlook, which was published, I think it's four weeks ago, the prediction is that by 2030 it will be cost competitive in all countries of the world, including emerging markets and developing countries.
2: Let's just shift our gaze away for a moment from the Nordics in Europe. Also participating in this talk is Yoshiaki Wada from Japan.
1: I really envy uh, Nordic friends or European friends because, you know, one way or the other, Uh, you you are linked, your grid is linked to other countries and it is technically possible to support each other in the worst case scenario. Whereas Japan is totally isolated. Plus, uh, Japan's dependency to overseas uh, for energy generating uh, resources is almost 100%. Mm. So we are not self-sufficient. So, uh, you know, uh, Russia invading Ukraine and uh, this energy crisis happening, it was really a wake-up call for Japan uh, to be you know, independent in the sense of you know, energy procurement. Now, uh, renewable energy, uh, we're uh, about 20 years late from you guys. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we have just uh, started the initiative of launching it in Japan.
2: Yoshiaki is a member of the House of Representatives in the Japanese Parliament for the Liberal Democratic Party, since its foundation in 1955, the party has been in power almost continuously.
1: We really have to speed up the process. On the other hand, we really we, we have to face the real reality of survival uh, of uh, to to make sure that power is uh, properly supplied to Japanese citizens. That is the really short-term uh, issues. Whereas, uh, if we do not uh, proceed the renewables uh, faster then our uh, uh, self-sufficiency cannot be uh, confirmed.
2: The experience from the Nordic countries is that once the renewable energy sources are established, the benefits are enormous. Here's Thomas.
0: The low-cost electricity available from solar and wind now makes it possible not only to produce all the electricity we need for conventional electricity use. We can also start using this electricity to substitute fossil fuels and the transport sector and industry. And the fact that renewable electricity is not only cheaper than electricity generation from fossil fuels, but since about five, six years, even cheaper than fossil fuels per unit energy is going to be extremely important
1: in the coming years.
2: Hmm. Yoshiaki nods. He agrees with Thomas. Our uh,
1: portfolio of renewable uh, has to increase and we have a lot of potentials uh, for offshore windmill plus uh, geothermal, uh, also hydro. So uh, we have a lot of room uh, to increase the uh, proportion.
2: An important factor is to make sure that Japan is self-sufficient when it comes to establishing renewable energy systems.
1: From the self-sufficiency point of view, uh, we have no other choice but to go for renewables plus nuclear. So that's the only way. And again, uh, what we need to look at carefully is that, uh, you know, the self-sufficiency of supply chain basis. Uh, If we uh, go for renewables, for example, offshore windmill, and we import components from China, then that is not really, you know, a secure way uh, to generate uh, power. So the entire supply chain has to be secure. Uh, in, In that sense, we have to have strong partnership of technology. Uh, supply chain, uh, everything uh, with the safe partners, uh, uh, reliable partners.
2: Thomas points out that there is a difference between being dependent on fuel from other countries and being dependent on buying equipment from other countries.
0: I would agree that it's enjoyable to have a a domestic supply chain but it is not as important as it is regarding fossil fuels because if you if you're dependent on importing fuels and you are cut off from your surrounding and cannot get fuels Mm -hmm. then you don't have any energy no heating no electricity but if you have imported solar panels and wind power plants and they are operating and you're cut off they will continue to produce. Mm. Mm. So it's it's a clear distinction between the dependency on fuel imports on the one hand and equipment import on the other.
2: Lars is quick to point out the potential for Japan to get energy from offshore wind power.
4: The potential for offshore wind in Japan, when we look at that's why we are here as a Copenhagen infrastructure partner, mm-hmm. it's just it's huge. I mean the winds are exceptional. Of course you get you, you'll have to get the floating offshore wind technology to work. We have different demonstration project mm-hmm. it's going to work mm-hmm. we have no doubt we just won a lease last night uh, for the first uh, commercial offshore uh, floating wind site in california where it's very deep as well uh, so the potential is is, is is there but if you want to have the supply chain and you also have to be a first mover yes and that's the experience we've had in europe and in, in denmark it's the experience to have in the us you need to move first if you want to have the supply chain mm-hmm. and japan really has a chance of becoming this first mover in the region because South Korea is very interested in floating in offshore wind. It has <coughs> floating as well. Uh, all around the region, it's floating mm. wind. So if you could get that supply chain up and running by having some ambitious targets and when you want to build out, the supply chain is going to move to uh, to, to Japan and, and ensure the self sufficiency that mm-hmm. you're you're looking for. Uh, I've no doubt about that.
2: The Danes seem to be advanced when it comes to offshore wind turbines. In not too long. We'll even have an energy island in the middle of the North Sea, housing a whole lot of them.
4: The whole idea about energy islands is to harvest offshore wind at a very, very large scale. So uh, it's already been decided in Denmark. The tender will go out at the beginning of next year, and we'll probably have it done by 31, 32-ish. And there we're talking about 10 gigawatts of wind connected. The whole point about an energy island is that you can move far out to sea, build an island. We can do that in the North Sea because waters are fairly shallow. Fair shallow, where the wind is excellent. It's the best place in the world to do offshore wind. You can connect almost a couple of places where it's better, but it's very, really, really good because you combine it with shallow waters. You can connect all the wind farms to the island and you can do one transmission cable to, to shore for the electricity. And then we want to build Power2x on the island to so produce green hydrogen, which can be distributed through piping which is much, much cheaper uh, than transmission of uh, electricity. That's the whole idea about uh, energy islands. Actually, we spent the day yesterday meeting with the Japanese authorities, arguing that they should think about something like this in Japan as well, outside of Tokyo. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here you don't need to build an artificial, you cannot build an artificial island because it's too deep, but there are plenty of islands where you can do this, build floating offshore at a very, very large scale. Connected to an island, produce green hydrogen, uh, ensure power production for, for the Tokyo region as well. It's a huge opportunity to go there. But it's a completely different way of thinking, because it's not just offshore wind, it's an energy system. You're building an entirely new energy system at scale.
2: Exactly because of the scale, many countries in Europe will benefit from the establishment of the energy islands.
4: So the whole plan about the North Sea is that uh, we are going to build probably two energy islands in Denmark mm-hmm. uh, within the economic zone in Denmark again it's good business and you want to ensure that the piping go through Danish territorial waters to to Norway so they can pay back a bit of the money they earned <laughs> in the last many, many years. <laughs> and then we're talking to the British authorities about building an energy island there. It's in planning in Germany as well, uh, in the Netherlands and in Belgium. Belgium is probably going to be the first country to have an energy island mm-hmm. in place. And the whole idea is to connect those uh, energy islands. And that's a backbone of the powerhouse that we want to have in the North Sea which in itself will almost be able uh, have the ability to uh, to replace uh, mm-hmm. Russian gas.
2: So, we are talking about very large infrastructure projects to put it mildly. And I guess you can't really install infrastructure of that scale without talking about how to protect it, not the least in the Nordic and Baltic Sea regions where geopolitical tensions have revealed the need to secure such installations. But according to Thomas, production sites with renewable energy have a great advantage compared to other infrastructure. Here's Thomas.
0: The war in the Ukraine now has made very clear the vulnerability of the large-scale power plants and, and, and parts of the infrastructure, mm-hmm. which have been under attack to create difficulties for the Ukrainian population. We also seen the uh, rather um, exciting uh, challenges for the nuclear power plants, where power cuts may result in core melts because of um, failure in cooling, just like Fukushima. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, at the same time, there was a little uh, experience where a Russian grenade hit a solar power park in in, in the Ukraine. And you can see these pictures with a big crater and solar panels have had flown away. And then uh, within 24 hours, they sort of removed the damaged solar panels, connected the rest, and production started again. And they said, well, I think the grenade costs more money than the damaged (laughs) solar panels. Uh, And that's quite an important thing, that these things are more... Robust. Uh, and uh, someone mentioned the, the uh, uh, natural disaster risks here. I mean, with solar panels on rooftop and batteries, you will be able to, to get the essential electricity even after large natural disaster, earthquakes, uh, typhoons and things that are, are, are something that can otherwise create co- quite a lot of suffering in, in countries like Japan.
2: According to Lars, we're seeing a new way of looking at energy all over the world
4: we are entering a new world era. Uh, We spent 30 years in liberal world order where we've done everything we could to separate politics and economics to reap the full benefits of globalization. You know, international uh, division of labor, supply chains all over, Mm -hmm. because it worked very well and the price was very low, which is one of the reasons why we kept on increasing our dependency on Russian gas, even Mm -hmm. though we had the invasion in in Georgia in 2008 and and, then the annexation of Crimea in 2014. So, but things are different now. So when we do energy, when we do renewables, it's the same thing with nuclear installations. I very much agree with what you said, Thomas. This is critical infrastructure.
2: Thomas agrees that the paradigm has shifted.
4: From
0: a policymaker point of view, 10 years ago, it was a matter of ambitions and push. Now it's a matter of removing barriers in a skillful way, because that will decide which countries will see this development going commercial and fast and profitable for the country and the companies and which will end up with the slow development, creating costs and making them laggards, the the the, the old inefficient uh, countries in the world.
2: And so, as more and more countries are moving towards more renewables, there are increased opportunities to learn from one another. Here's Stian.
3: The important thing for the government is to get a predictable framework. And also collaboration between different governments, learn from the best examples. For instance, how the uh, Denmark and, and Norway has built out the offshore, for instance. How, what kind of framework have they used there? Uh, can the, something similar be applied in Japan, for instance? Learn from best examples, simplify things, make things predictable, make things without barriers, uh, as you mentioned. I think that's going to be the politicians everywhere in the world if you're going to accelerate uh, the green transition.
2: As we've heard today, there are indeed enough challenges when it comes to energy. Supply disruption, power price volatility and the huge infrastructure investments that are needed to further the development in the direction of more renewables. But there is also hope. As Thomas, Steen Lars and Yoshiaki have explained today, the cost-effectiveness for renewables is already good. And it's rising by the day. Clean energy is becoming good business. And the first movers will have an advantage in the unavoidable green transition. I'm Josefine Folkvarts. Thank you for listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. Do you want to organize your own Nordic Talks event? then check out nordictalks.com slash producer. I'm Josefine Folkvarts. Thanks for listening.